ready for the interview And if you get a cue live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real That's the motto Real talk, pronto Doctor D, PhD, hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals so I've been waiting to have Christine on. We've had like the reschedule a few times and I was like, man, I can't wait for this conversation. So we're finally here. Yeah, I know. I'm excited. So I titled this for the, for the audience listening as like coffee, life and leadership, basically for them there, kind of pull them in kind of a Starbucks story. So before we get into Starbucks, let's learn about your life pre-Starbucks. Well, there wasn't much life pre-Starbucks because I started so young. <laughs> How old were you when you started with Starbucks? I was 19. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was, and I was there for 27 years. Woo. So yeah, so I actually, you know, spent, let's see, I just had my 52nd birthday yesterday. So if I did the math, yeah, I spent more than half my life there. Um, and I actually started working there probably about a year and a half or so after I graduated from high school and moved to Seattle. So I grew up in a small town in the center of Alaska called Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. It's the second largest city in the state. I think there's about 40,000 people. Um, and I grew up there in a very um, civil servant oriented family I was super involved in politics and community and um, had they had adapted to living in super harsh conditions of which I have not. <laughs> Even yeah. Seattle feels cold to me today. Right. Um, and just really instilled in me this sense of, of service to others. But two days after I graduated from high school, I hopped on an airplane with a one-way ticket and moved to Seattle. Um, and really had a quest for, without sounding cliche, looking for a better life for myself. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, having a chance to become even more independent. So I'm happy to, to share a little bit more about what it was like coming up to, you know, up to before I worked at Starbucks, I had worked and had several jobs before working at Starbucks. I started working really young, um, part of it out of, um, necessity in terms of being able to, you know, fund and buy the things that I enjoyed as a kid. Right. Um, and part of it is because I just like to work. I don't know, you know, if that was modeled from my family or what have you. So I've had many jobs before I started working at Starbucks at age 19. Um, and I'd say my first real kind of like non-family job was when I was in high school, um, when I worked at a, at a restaurant. So yeah. A little so, bit, a little bits and pieces about my life before Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. A couple of things. One, how did you find out about Starbucks? This was, a, this was like, correct me if I'm wrong, the beginning or the super early days of Starbucks. And what did you know about them in the beginning? Yeah. So I found out about Starbucks, um, in going into the job placement center at my community college. So I walked in, I was looking for a job and there was a post on a bulletin board, a little three by five index card. This is of course, you know, before computers. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, uh, tech, technical job placement services. And I seen this card and I'd heard of the company before. The company it was a small Seattle based company. It had about 35 stores. 
but already there was a reputation of being a good place to work and treating employees well and having good benefits. So there was a name recognition for me, although I'd never actually been in, in a cafe. So I found this card on the job placement board and it gave me instructions to call hiring manager for a new store that was going to be opening not far from my school. So I called her and she said, well, you sound like an interesting human being, I guess. I had a lot of enthusiasm. I had a little bit of coffee experience prior to that. And she said, why don't you come in for an interview? And so that's when I really, that, that may have been the first time I'd ever actually walked into a Starbucks store was that interview. Um, I was a college student. I didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't able to like go in and buy fancy drinks every day, <laughs> but I actually had you know enough name recognition and like, maybe this is a good place to start. So that's, that was how it came to be. What did, what were your initial thoughts in the in working with at Starbucks? Like, did you, was it what you expected or was it a little bit different? I don't know if I actually had an expectation walking into it, but I think what I noticed immediately was a sense of teamwork and camaraderie. Like Starbucks didn't feel to me a conventional kind of fast food or quick service experience. It felt like a sense of community. And so while I didn't have an expectation that surprised me and it actually also surprised me how much fun it was mm. because in the coffee business, you're usually the first part of somebody's day, right? Although there are, you can't, you know, stores can be open 24 hours and you can go in, in the evenings and stuff, but you know, the, the busy periods is the beginning of the day. And I loved being a part of that beginning of somebody's day. And so that surprised me too. You know, I tell stories in my book about, I can still remember what, and what some of the customers look like 30 years ago. And a lot of them probably aren't alive anymore, unfortunately, because, you know, they were older back then in their fifties and sixties. But I just can remember that. And I just remember how much fun we had in our interactions when they come in first thing in the morning. So I think that surprised me that the job was really fun and that the environment was very nurturing, welcoming and community minded, which I didn't know it would be like that. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think one of the biggest things is taking people behind the curtains of different industries and who better to do this than you. (laughs) We'll we'll get to all the other stuff as you moved up, but in terms of barista, you know, a lot of people, maybe the live audience, I'm sure they've been to a Starbucks. You get one vantage point of being at Starbucks, being on that side. What's the typical day on the other side the, in terms of working there? You know, it's gotten, the business has gotten so much more complex, obviously, since I worked there. Although in my last role with the organization, I supported the stores directly and operations with a lot of programs. So I had a pretty good sense of it. And you know, the employees, the thing that gets them up and coming in in the morning is the customers. Like they really look forward to seeing regulars and meeting new people. It's a really hard job. It's really demanding. Not only are you on your your feet, you know, for four to eight hours, you are having to manage multiple activities that are not just making customers, preparing a customer's product, but everything from inventory management to food safety to, um, you know, service recovery to, you know, cleaning, um, 
there's just a lot coming at them. And I couldn't do that job today. There's no way really? I, like, it is a hard job wow. physically and mentally. And so I think just knowing that it, there's so much behind the scenes work is done by the employees in the store to actually provide you a really great welcoming experience. Um, because there are standards that need to be upheld and there's expectations to have. And so they have to make sure that all of those things are running really smoothly so they can focus on the customer interaction. So, um, but usually, you know, if the manager's done a really great job of hiring, store employees, Starbucks calls them partners, are going to have a lot of fun as a team, right? So there's this kind of camaraderie they have in being, especially being able to get through, it's called a rush, you know, mm. all of a sudden there's a line of 12 people out the door and you like all hammered out and you work together like clockwork and you're having fun. And then like after the rush, you're like now we can like relax and before we have to restock everything. And that is super fun too. So that is my experience, it's been probably every year before I left, when I was in corporate, I would work in the stores at least a couple of times a year to mm -hmm. help me, one, remember what it's like to be in that role, but also understand what are things that I have the ability to influence to make it easier for them to do their job. Um, and so I'd like to stay connected, but I could, I could never do that job now, not because I wouldn't want to, but because I seriously don't have the mental or physical capacity to be able to do it. Was that a requirement to go work in the store a couple of times a year? Was that your thing? No, no. When new executives were brought into the company, maybe not even at the executive level, oftentimes it was called the store immersion was mm -hmm. suggested as part of the onboarding experience. It wasn't required, but it was definitely encouraged. But many people didn't go back and do that on a regular basis. Um, but I felt like one, it helped me connect into what's actually happening and also building relationships with the team and then taking ideas that help me be better provider to them and the work that I'm doing. And I also use that time to connect with customers. So um, I have a funny quick story. So it's yeah. probably like eight years ago, there's a big snowstorm in Seattle and Seattle's really hilly for those people who aren't from around here. And when it snows and Seattle has no snow removal equipment. So when it snows, the whole city shuts down. Um, and my local Starbucks kind of sits in a little Valley. And so, you know, the fact that the employees could actually make it to open the store, much less like serve customers, but then the Starbucks became the, becomes, became the hub during these snowstorms. Yeah. So one day I went down there during a snowstorm and my family was with me and they were really short staffed and the store was just crazy busy. It was like a ski lodge. There's like wet clothes <laughs> everywhere. There's like snow piles and there's yeah. like garbage overflowing. I looked at my husband. I was like, time to put on an apron. And it's we all done. put on aprons. And my son, who was too little, sat in the corner and we're like, we're just going to do whatever we can to like help these partners get through this and to serve these customers. And I just felt like it was my responsibility to do that. Um, but if I hadn't been in there somewhat regular, you know, on a, some level of frequency, it would have been a little bit harder. They definitely didn't have me make drinks and they didn't, didn't definitely didn't have me <laughs> ring up people to register. Cause that would have, I would have screwed everything up then. <laughs> no good, right? Do people get frustrated? Did you ever get frustrated with like, you know, you always hear about the famous Starbucks order. Like people, <laughs> like the crazy orders, right? I mean, like I, I've been in many Starbucks in my life, but I, I haven't necessarily seen that too much, but is that as regular as people say it is? I mean, 
I, you know, when I, of course, when I started, it was so much simpler because there was like two kinds of syrup and yeah. there was, um, you know, a couple kinds of milk and there was no blended beverage. Um, and now I've heard there's like something like 30 or 50,000, maybe more beverage combinations available. <laughs> so I do know that, but it's all around personalization, right? Yeah. Like my beverage is super simple. I drink cold brew coffee with nothing in it, or I might drink a small drip coffee with nothing in it. That's yeah. just what I like. But my husband, he has a tall chai tea latte with no water and a shot of espresso. Right. And that, and so, you know, that's a little, you know, a little more complex than mine, but there's yeah. other people who have like things they've just found their perfect beverage. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm sure they're out there. <laughs> It's got to be out there. I hear about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I mean, if I listened in when I was in the store, next time I listen yeah. in, you see if there's anything really, you know, complicated that's ahead of me in line. Right. What was the orientation like? Um, as we kind of stay in the beginning a little bit here, tell me about the orientation, like when you started and what is the big difference as we move towards the latter stages, what it's looking like now? Yeah. I mean, the big shift was like, you know, back then I mentioned the menu was not compl complicated at all. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't need as much practice. There also wasn't as much technology. So you were, had to use your, um, you had to use different like manual systems a lot. Like there would be things like when we go through training that if somebody ordered a decaf, you might turn the cup a certain way because there's no mm -hmm. sticker to tell you it's a decaf. There was nothing yeah. on the way to write on the cup. But the majority of the training and onboarding back then, there was more sp time spent on whole bean coffee, like coffee that you would buy by the pound, and less time spent on beverage pr production. And there really wasn't any food service. Fast forward to today, I imagine that the majority of the training, at least when I left, was focused on beverage production, cleanliness standards, food warming standards. There's still mission and values is a big part of that training. There's still customer service is a big part of that training, but there's a lot less focus on the whole bean um, coffee sales and descriptions and things like that. Um, there's probably also less time spent in a formal classroom today. And there's more mm -hmm. online training, whereas back then you'd like go to a workshop for like three or four hours. And so I think the delivery mechanism for the training has changed as well. But I should go through sense. the training. It's been a while. I mean, I did one of my responsibilities at one point in my career was store level training. Um, and that was, I was a director of training for the U.S. operations. And so, you know, we designed the materials and I go out and experience them to see what it was like. Um, and I'm sure it's, you know, obviously it has morphed since then. So. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you know that you wanted to move up in the company or were you just kind of like, Hey, I'm working here. We'll see what happens. Take me through that a little bit. Yeah. And I, you know, I always have been, I mentioned earlier, like super industrious. I've always liked work. I've always had ambition, not ambition to the end of being able to like make a certain amount of money or get a certain place in my career, but ambition to learn and grow. And I was always scanning when I was, you know, when I was first starting out and even, you know, till I left to up to the point I left even though I had been, you know, so much time and my scope had grown so much, but like, what else can I learn? What can I gain from this experience? So I never anticipated I'd be there that long. And I never had my sights set on a certain like job level, especially earlier in my career, but I wanted to be challenged. 
I wanted to find new ways to grow my skills and, you know, get into areas and have experiences I hadn't had. It just kind of unfolded in the way that it did, you know? And, and I think as time went on, there probably, there was more intentionality, but definitely not in the beginning. There was a lot of more being opportunistic versus like setting my sights. And I think there are times where I did have a lot, like a set plan I wanted to follow. And then something else completely happened. Like I was a training manager. I've been in training and development twice. There are two different like cycles. I was a training manager and decided with my boss to go out on a year long rotation into the outside sales division. I wanted to get some more business experience. I wanted to see what it was like to be out in the market versus like people coming into a store Um, and I wanted to build some business skills. And so we agreed, we'd do a one-year plan and then I would come back after that year and I would be in position to become a training director. Well, I liked sales so much. I stayed in there seven years, right? So, and I ended up growing my career in that organization, not because that was my plan. So I've learned a lot to, you know, have some intentionality, have some focus, but also just really be open. So long-winded answer to your question I did not have any idea it would unfold itself the way it did. Yeah. Um, but I'm super grateful because I've learned a lot and I've grown so much. I feel like that's a story for a lot of people. It's like, you feel like you want to plan this certain, oh, it's going to be this way. And it's always never that. I feel like never. it's never what you think it's going to be, you know? You know, I think it's the same, you know, in life and athletics, you know, all of those things, you can do all of these things. And then you, sometimes you just have to like, just see, you know, the, the, comp, the, the quote, like, you know, the universe is speaking to you, just be open, yeah, you know, to what might reveal itself. And I'm in that space. Now I've owned my own business for two years. I never visioned having my own business. It just kind of happened. <laughs> I don't exactly know what's going next. Although I'm spending yeah. some time the next month working through that a little bit more, but kind of just wanted to see where things lead me both in my heart and my mind. And I think that's applies to all aspects of life. Yeah. I'm the same way. Like I, I own three businesses now. And if you told me I would, I would be doing any of that. I'd be like, no, that's, I'm like a company exactly. guy. Yeah. Like I work for a place and I come in and I get a, a paycheck every two weeks Yeah, and I do the whole thing. And I'm like, my life is the furthest from that now, which is crazy yeah. to me. I, I know. I, isn't that funny? It's ridiculous. almost. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what, what happened to me? You know, so it's just really like you never know where your life is headed for that. But it's kind of like once you're in it, you go, okay, this seems like a good opportunity. Maybe I'll follow this. I'll follow that. Um, now, when you were were at Starbucks, you know, I was talking with the audience before about leadership. Tell me a little bit about leadership qualities at Starbucks. And was that something that was talked about on a larger level with the company? Yeah. I mean, I would say there was more of an implied leadership philosophy mm. versus like an explicit leadership philosophy. Explain so, that to the audience. So we- yeah. So there wasn't like a lot of companies have like, here's our leadership philosophy. It is to, um, you know, develop high-performing leaders by developing these competencies, you know, and these skills, and there's a program to support it. Starbucks when, you know, at the highest level, you know, there wasn't like an articulated leadership philosophy, but it was really around, and it still is, how do you lead people through the lens? You know, it's through the mission and values of the company. Um, 
there are probably leadership competencies today, but it's also something the company's gone back and forth on. Do we have specific leadership competencies or not? When I left, it was really like, are we leading through the lens of the company values? But there wasn't like this like statement or philosophy, but the most effective leaders, um, from my opinion, and what I've seen uh, really can connect with people and lead and develop their teams. They are open to learning and changing and innovation. They are visionary. Um, they know actually how to bring others along in their vision, whether it's their team or whether it's their internal stakeholders. And let's see if I'm forgetting anything. Those are probably, you know, the same. And those things have probably stayed true all, all these years. I would say, and this is again, my opinion. <laughs> and if you read my book, you'll understand this. <laughs> like it's, um, I think that there's less focus on the people piece than there used to be. Interesting. And I, I, and that's not to say that I don't believe that the company believes that, you know, leaders need to be great at leading people, but I've seen so many um, examples of where leaders have been rewarded and recognized, even though they were horrible people leaders yeah. and didn't, didn't yeah. really, and hor horrible developers of teams. So I think that is not as strong as, um, as it was. And again, this is just based on my own experience talking through other, you know, what I've seen change and talking to other people who have worked there or worked there. So, you know, I, I was in a big, actually what you talked about the implied leadership was almost word for word, what I was telling the audience before I got on here a little oh, bit yeah. about, yeah, it was, it was there's so, so much data on leadership, yeah. especially through Gallup long-term studies and that uh, like in particular, like transformational or transcendent leaders maybe like one out of every 10 managers actually has all those qualities that you mentioned for that. So yeah. It's exceedingly rare, actually. It's not a common leadership deal. I don't, I don't, I don't think it is. And I think um, it's hard to teach sometimes too, but I think one of the most important things is if an organization or company can like articulate, like what are the leadership values that are really important to them, then you can, people know what to expect. Like Amazon I love, hate Amazon, you know, everybody's <laughs> different on that. I have friends who work there and I too, know yeah. people that love it and people that hate it, but they have really clear leadership principles. They are not in this guise of what you described as that tran transcendent leadership. Yeah. No, but that's, they, as a company have chosen that to not be their priority. Good on them, whatever. I know they turn and burn a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of people get fried working there, yeah. but they also have the opportunity to do really innovative, you know, cutting edge work, which is an attraction, but yeah, there's, um, so I think once an organization decides what they want, then, you know, being able to like teach that to people and, and really reinforce that that's important. You know, I'm in a consulting space now and I, um, it sounds kind of like egotistical, I guess, but I don't like to work with companies who aren't open to, you know, evolving their leadership capabilities yeah. and only want to focus on the bottom line. Personally, it doesn't interest me. I am interested in working with people who care about their people. Um, unfortunately, I, you know, get to work with a lot of people who really do care and are trying to find ways to be yeah. better, better for their people. So how does like a company as large as Starbucks have quality control where they could have this implied leadership aspect? It's so big. You know? Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, if you think about it, there's, you know, kind of distinct distinguish between the corporate organization and the field organization, which is all the stores. Yeah. And the stores is, it's so important to have really great managers. 
right? The managers can, you know, the quality of the manager can make or break the experience of the employees working in the stores, and then they can make or break the experience of the customers. So it really starts with, you know, that great manager who's supported by a really skilled district manager because a company, the corporate can't manage that. There's, I mean, like you said, it's so big. So you really have to hire for those skills. I mean, that's like any org, but in a multi-unit organization with hundreds of thousands of employees, you're just so dependent on the unit manager to set the tone for that culture. Corporate, it's a little different because people have more cross-functional interaction. You know, they can kind of roll out things to a, you know, this population that's fairly contained. I mean, even if it's virtual, they're not dealing with customers on a daily basis. So I think it's easier to be able to kind of you know, grab that tide and kind of move that through a corporate construct than it is in a field organization. So you really have to hire great managers and take good care of them. Yeah. yeah. How, how does Starbucks do that? How do they determine, operationalize what is a great manager beyond, I know there's this implied leadership, but is there, is there a process that for a recruiting aspect to find great managers, maybe not even from Starbucks, within Starbucks, but outside? of Starbucks yeah. in different industries. Yeah, I don't know the process that they're using today. I mean, they do, to your point, you know, look at developing people from internal organization and there's a very clear developmental path and things that they do and how they get mentors and support and what training they go through. Um, and like, they will take like the size of the store you work with, you know, so they will put like in my local store, they just brought in recently a new assistant manager so that he could learn from the manager of the store mm-hmm. because the manager of that store, he's like really capable, super skilled. And so he is training this assistant manager to eventually manage his own store. So they have a system like that from internal and then externally, they just have to really, you know, you know, look at the selection process. How are they evaluating based on values, based on skill set, based on experience? And then they will put the manager in the store based on how, um, how well that manager kind of rounds out that team and that customer in that community, because not every, it's really important, you know, that again, the manager sets the tone. So the manager's ability to interact with, engage in that community and with those customers, and also to inspire the team, different managers are needed for different types of stores, right? you know? Right. And so that's, that's really intentional fit or thought too, is a, I heard the word today. It's not culture, culture fit you know, it's using the term culture ad. So I think there is, I think it's a little bit of both in the store, like who's going to like fit the culture of the community, but then who's also going to add to it so that everybody's set up for set up for success. Right. So that's it. But I don't know the mechanics of the, the process. Um, interesting. My local store manager, he's just, he's so fantastic. He's just knocks it out of the park and he really wants to be a, um, he really wants to be a recruiter for store managers. And so I was talking with him recently that for him to be a recruiter for store managers, he actually needs to manage, be a district manager and manage multiple stores. So he gets a chance to see all of these different store teams, communities, neighbors, and all that, the different capability sets across a portfolio of stores, not just his own store. So we're talking like, I believe for him to be an effective recruiter of store managers, he needs to have a broader experience yeah. set. So that was just my advice to him. <laughs> so it know. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I never thought about the store, like location, the size of the store, the geography, 
uh, you know, because for me and before I had having all these businesses, I was running and I was opening luxury fitness clubs and health and health and wellness amenities, country club environments. And, you know, we would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't put the GM of a 10,000 square foot club and a 50,000 square foot club. And maybe that 10,000 square foot club was in Mississippi. We wouldn't put them in one in California. It would be too overwhelming. There'd them. be some sort of training. There'd have to be like, a, right. you know, building blocks to get that Correct. person there. So they feel successful. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So it makes sense that uh, I just never thought about it for Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, I mean, it's when you're similar. not in it, you yeah. don't know. Yeah. You don't yeah. know when you're not in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about this, like taking somebody from a, my local, I kind of, I'm not in the suburb of Seattle. I'm in Metro Seattle, but I'm in a, like a suburban feeling neighborhood in Seattle. But if you were to take that manager, who's, he's fantastic. I'm sure he'd be great. But then you throw him into a 24 hour drive-through store on the East coast. He's never worked a drive-through store <laughs> before the company. Let's say the store is doing twice the volume, Yeah, you know, it's a different customer base. Like how do you, how would you, I'd ask a question, how would you set him up for success? Yeah. Right. So, right. Yeah. Or the, exactly. I mean, you're, and you're talking, okay. East coast, West coast. I've lived all over the country, <laughs> very different personalities, yeah. behavior, regional behavior, yep. <laughs> whole thing. And then when you're overnight, you're talking about a whole different thing yeah. happening. Yep. For, for sure. <laughs> so you have to be, so it's not enough to say, Hey, you've been good at this position. You'll be great in this one. For it. Yeah. But a lot of companies make that mistake. They go, it's easier to just hire within and move this person over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some, you know, again, it's like, I, I don't, you want somebody to st- stretch and grow for sure. You know, right. you know, but you also don't again, want to like set them up for failure. You know, what if their teams double the size or what have you, right. or even the other way around, you know, a manager going from one location that's really big and complicated to a much smaller, you know, location with not as many customers and maybe it, it it might, you know, they might feel underutilized potentially, but unless there are things out of that experience that are going to be different for them, they give them a chance to practice some new skills. So I actually once got talked out of a job because of that. Oh yeah. (laughs) And this great club in Las Vegas. And I was like, Oh, there's an amazing club on the East coast. I want to move to it's in Maryland. And my boss was like, don't do it. It's (laughs) like, it's, it's more money but mm-hmm. you'll be bored out of your mind mm-hmm. and nobody lasts in this job longer than a year because they're so bored yep. with it. So it does go both ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's important. It is important. Well, let's jump, let's jump into the book a bit more from barista to boardroom. Why the book? How did this come <laughs> about? Let's get into the weeds of that. You know? Yeah. It's, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, being open to the possibilities and, you know, having a vision for your life or your career, but not always being so wedded to the path to get there. And the book is definitely an example of that because I've never considered myself a writer. I never envisioned writing a book for never, like not even (laughs) remotely on. It wasn't a possibility in your mind. (laughs) Never. I mean, I, I love, you know, writing bullet points and PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> so I yeah, love it, but I'm like, right. I, that's more my area because I get to the point, you know, right. <laughs> but I was sharing my story with a friend of mine on a long run. Gosh, I don't know. Maybe now I've got to look at the timeline, but I think it's at least six years ago. And he's actually a friend of mine that works at Amazon. Um, and he was hearing my story about how I grew up and how I, you know, rose from a part-time barista while I was going to college. Then I dropped out of college, ended up making it a full-time career. And then at the 
time he knew me, I was a vice president there. And he was listening to my story and he said, you know, Christine, I think you have a really compelling story. And I think uh, others would really benefit from it. He said, especially women, perhaps women earlier in career. And then in the middle, and then he said, and I think you should call it from barista to boardroom. There you go. <laughs> and his name's Subu. And I was like, Subu, you know, great, flattered. I think that's a really dumb idea. <laughs> Not the title, but like the whole, the whole idea is like, I, why, I, I couldn't get my head wrapped around what the value this could bring to myself or to others. Okay. But I kind of sat there and then he, every once in a while, he's just, you know, he likes to pester me with, with ideas. He still <laughs> does. If he listens to this, I'm sure he'll start laughing because he's yep. always putting little ideas in my head. But I started thinking like, okay, why would I want to do something like this if I were to do it? And when I got really clear on my purpose, then I was like, okay, this makes sense for me. So two things came up for me. One, it sounds kind of, you know, audacious goal to write a book, but I'm like, if I can learn how to write, you know, and tell a story, that's something that I never saw in myself, then I would feel like it's a worthy project um, to actually build some skills there. And then the second was if I could help somebody um, through inspiring, sharing some lessons learned, provide a spark to make a tough decision, um, to celebrate something that maybe they, you know, want to celebrate within themselves or in their life. If I could help by way of um, sharing my story, then I will have achieved my purpose, which ties to my overall purpose of living a life of service. Yeah. So sorry, my, my dog was barking on us. Okay. <laughs> We've had a lot of different dogs on here. I should bring my dog. He's a great Dane. He's gigantic. <laughs> So I just tried mute and, and now I don't know what he's doing, but oh, yeah. it's okay. He's, Believe me. Okay. You just roll with the punches. That's life, okay. right? Awesome. Life. I mean, what's perfect in life? Oh, I've got it. Just, so yeah, so that's how it happened. And so I just devoted time every day to be able to like, you know, do a little bit of writing and just let my story unfold and the rest is history. So I launched it on June 1. And um, just have been blown away by the level of support and the connections, like meeting you and stories yeah. I've gotten from people around the impact that it's had on them. That um, as I'm really grateful. I, I'm very, I, I yeah. definitely achieved both of those goals. So that's how it came to be. So, what are the lessons of this book, kind of the high level lessons that this book is providing to people? Um, I was providing lessons on choosing your own path, mm. not, I call it not being um, swayed by the shoulds of life. I should <laughs> do this. I should do that. Yeah. It provides lessons on what we talked about earlier. Career pathing is not linear. Uh, lessons and more reminders of our lives are big and complicated webs. They are not distinctly, you know, how we live and our families and our work they're meshed together. So it provides lessons in all of those areas. And a lot of the feedback I've gotten from people regarding the um, book is that it's either sparked reflection or perhaps action around some of those things. And so, um, yeah, those are the key lessons. The should part, I think is particularly interesting because I think for a lot of people listening or will listen Sometimes you're, you know, the should is heavily influenced by people you love in your life. And you should be this, you should be a doctor, you should be an engineer, you should do this. 
And it often cripples people because they feel like they've lost a sense of control of like, hey, I want to do something that I feel fulfilled in. That seems like a big part of that. Well, what role did your parents play in that should aspect? You know, I don't, I grew up in a really, you know, a not conventional household in that I was raised by my dad because my mother left when I was four years old. So it's not unusual for people to have two parent or single parent households. It is a little more unusual, at least my, what I understand that people to have a single, you know, parent household. So that's led by a a father um, or a male or whatever caregiver. And so um, I didn't have pressures on, I should do this. I should do that. But I felt like that, you know, there were some, you know, seeing people around me, like, you know, going to college, you know, right out of high school is what you should do. You know, saving money and building your nest egg is something that you should do. Um, you know, advancing, you know, you're getting at your first house and then maybe a second house later is something you should do. Starting a family is something you should do. Like I saw that more going on around me. It didn't really come from my family. Um, and I think I did get a lot of my independent spirit from, because I grew up young and had to take care of myself, um, and my little brother often growing up that I you know, but I, I kind of like, I didn't get the parents that they should, but I felt like those outer forces were telling me I should. Um, and I just eventually learned and I'm still actually, I've learned it now. I could say not, I'm still learning, but like, I'm learning to do my own thing, you know, chart my own course, cut my own path. And, but I've felt like when I've made decisions that are different from some of those shoulds that people have questioned them. Like I dropped out of college right? Why are you dropping out of college? When I left my big corporate job at Starbucks, why are you doing that? You're going to be so close to retirement. Right. When my husband and I were contemplating whether we wanted to start a family and like, well, this is the time you should be this because you're not going to be able to do this forever. So I'm like, I had to like take those narratives and tamp them down and reshape them so that they worked for me. Um, so yes, it wasn't my, my parents, so to speak, but I think it was just kind of broader, broader society that I, that kept those things, you know, in front of me, clanging, like paying attention to, and I was trying not to get stuck on that. And that's so powerful because I think all of us have faced that at some point or another, whether it's from parental influences, friends, coworkers, whatever it may be. I'm sure a lot of people listening, they've, they've had that. It's, it's interesting. A lot of it does come from guardian guardianship or parents but you're saying was from like the other influences in your life for that what did anybody ever tell you when you started as a barista like why are you doing this job (laughs) no because I was a part-time college student too or a full-time college student so I think it was kind of understandable but when I quit college (laughs) I would think it was a shift supervisor which is like um it's like it's an hourly position which is like a lead type position And they're like, you're quitting school and you're working at this little coffee company. You know, <laughs> I didn't get a lot of, I, I, I didn't get a lot of that, like told to me, I did a little bit, but it was more like a, what I felt. Cause it was like, yeah. people don't not go to college, at least back then. I know right. it's, it's a little more open right now. So I really didn't think about that. So my son just started in college. He's a freshman Yeah, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to go to college or not. And so I really had to watch like, okay, what am I projecting on him Yes. around? How does he 
make the choice that feels right for him. You know, I have certain expectations as a parent that he, you know, ultimately is going to be self-sufficient, making his own money, that he's a productive contributing member of society, but it doesn't have to be through going to college, but ultimately he made that decision. I had to be really mindful of that. (laughs) Because it's funny in your mind, it's like, you're thinking, oh, I want them to do well, maybe college, but then you're like, I dropped out of college. Wait a minute. Like it's like this, this pull back and forth of the past and the present almost, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And neither my husband and I, so my husband didn't drop out of college, but we, he went to community college in the beginning and then eventually went to a four-year university. So neither one of us had like the traditional quote unquote college experience where we, you know, lived on campus somewhere and we moved out of state and we had this like, you know, going to parties all the time type thing while also learning to be an adult. Like we didn't have that. So it's actually pretty wild to see our son learning and navigating through that experience. We were both, my husband and I were both became very um, resourceful and independent financially at a young age. Um, So, you know, that was just because out of necessity, but now our our husband, our son is having this different experience. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. He's having a hard time managing it a little bit. I'm going to see him on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) How is he having a hard time managing it? he's having a hard time. It's probably not the fair word. I think he's learning how to manage it, both his academic responsibilities, like even feeding himself and, (laughs) you know, like those things. And he, um, you know, managing the social pieces and he's having a ball and he's learning a lot, but he's also, I think, recognizing like, Oh, I actually have to budget. And I, you know, I, have to plan and oh 9 30 classes in the morning don't work work for me because <laughs> you know so I don't think a hard time but I, it's he's learning how to manage it is probably a better way to describe it and that's awesome like yeah yeah of course as a mom I'm I worry about him is he, yeah. is he getting enough nutrition is he exercising is he getting <laughs> enough asleep you know that kind of stuff but he's gonna figure it out eventually we all do or we try so I mean yeah I mean he's, he's an adult t- technically I mean right I mean it's like at some yeah. point, you know, you want people to become self-sufficient and get there. Does he ever ask you or your, at, your kids ask you about your story? Um, he doesn't. He's my only child and he hasn't asked, but he has started reading the book. He hasn't finished it yet. Oh. Um, so he did start reading, reading the book. I mean, he knows the story. And because, of course, you know, as parents were like, well, when I was your age, blah, 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 you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. But yeah. um, and he knows he is in a, you know, frankly, a more privileged situation than either his dad or I were in terms right. of how we grew up and the support that he's had. So he is very aware of that. And I think that's part of him wanting to, you know, mom, I need to be independent. Mom, I need to like, you know, learn how to budget, that sort of thing. So I think he, he gets some of those bits of the story, but I don't think he's read the book. So right. He says, he, last time I talked to him was a few months ago before I went to college, he said he read chapter one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, you know, I just had a conversation about this. Like, like if you're doing something, okay, let's say like this podcast, like I'm just, I'm closing in on 400 of these things. Like it's a lot. And yeah. I think my wife's listened to maybe, you know, four or five of them. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, well, you're always doing it. It's so many. It's like, yeah, I don't know. Which one am I supposed to listen to? It's like, sometimes the people closest to you are, are involved the least in like listening or reading yeah. whatever the stuff that you're doing, you know? Yeah, it's true. Sure. My, my husband did read my book. Um, he read like a draft that was probably 80% done yeah. and he was really moved by it because he, you know, I don't 
share with him on it all the time, like how he sh- shaped and contributed to right. that. I mean, he's experiencing a lot of these things, but for him to step back and read it, he thought that was cool. But it reminds me like when I first started running, my husband and son would show up at all my finish lines. Now, like they're probably, they're, they're probably still in bed before I even get back home or they're probably like still in bed by the time I get back like home. Anyways. So I understand that around yeah. the podcast. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, she always does this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll be, she'll come back home. You know, it's a whole thing. Do another one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What has been the uh, most exciting and the most challenging part of talking about this book? I've seen like on LinkedIn, I've seen you had a lot of posts about this and I'm sure you're sharing Mm -hmm. it like crazy, exciting and challenging aspects of it. Exciting has been like just meeting all the people that I've met by way of this. Like I never expected sharing my story and writing a book would be, you know, a new, create new connection opportunities from all over the world whether it's LinkedIn connection requests, whether it's podcasts, whether it's, you know, people sharing me stories of book count. I'm like, that has been so incredible. And I'm so grateful. Like one story is, I don't know how I met this person on LinkedIn, but he, um, he was t- sharing a story that he just graduated from high school and somebody, it showed up in my feed somehow. Yeah. He just, not gra- he just graduated from college and he was, you know, his mom would have been really proud of him, but his mom had passed away a few years ago. And so I just sent him a note, like your mom would be really proud of me. And then he private messaged me and said, Christine, my mom actually like killed herself a few years ago. And I don't, he basically said, I don't need your sympathy. I mean, he was really nice about it because I don't need your sympathy. I've learned to work through it. And I said, well, gosh, you know, I just, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm like, I think you should read my book because I talk about my mom's own mental health issues and me kind of finishing my degree late, like he did. So he lived in Germany. So I just sent him a copy of my book. And now we like message each other all the time. Like if I didn't have the book, like that never would have happened. Right. Yeah. So it was cool. So that things like that are like super exciting to create these unexpected connections, like with you and with the the, uh, young man I was talking about. Um, The other part of your question was what was, what was it? What was the, what was the most challenging? What's been the most challenging? challenging part of it? Yeah. I think you know, my focus isn't on like book sales and like, you know, Mm -hmm. pumping up the numbers there, although it's fun to watch, but (laughs) it's not, it's not my goal. But I think the challenge is I'm trying to figure out what to do next with all of the feedback I've gotten. So I need some soak time in it. There's Mm -hmm. definitely some, some themes that have emerged from readers that I feel really strongly about and passionate about, but I'm not sure what to do with it. So it's, I don't know if I need to write more about those things, if I need to go deeper into those things, if I need to create consulting programs for those things, if I need to create, you know, podcasts on those topics, Yeah. if I need to just let them sit. But that was, um, I guess, I don't know. I thought once the book was out, it was out, but now I'm like, okay, I've got all this <laughs> input from people. I mean, I have probably yeah. 20 pages of comments from people who've written me and I just, I, that's challenging, not in a negative way, but I'm not sure where to take it. Um, opening up about my story and sharing some of the specifics in it, it actually has been pretty easy. And it's probably because I had the book to process yeah. it, you know, to be able to like, you know, get through that. So sharing some of the harder stories has been really comfortable for me. So I always find that that's very therapeutic for a lot of people. I mean, I've had people come on here and tell some of the most wild stories I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, you know, and afterwards they're like, I needed to get that off my chest. I'm so <laughs> glad I did that. 
Yeah. Then I have people also who will contact me after like, I wish I didn't say any of that stuff. Oh, really? I talked to them about it and I said, listen, you know, like, but it's, you have to confront this. You have to face this, whatever it is, you know? And once we talked, they're like, yeah, you're probably right. And I had somebody, this was a crazy story. I thought it was crazy, whatever. But I had this lady and she says, you know, you got to take my podcast episode down. Oh, uh-huh. I said, oh, why? She said, well, you know, I, I talked a lot about my growing up and my childhood and abuse mm-hmm. and stuff. And then pl- an employer list, potential employer listened to it and said uh, it wasn't appropriate for me to be talking about that. And, oh. you know, and I said, listen, I said, listen to me. I will take it down because you asked. I said, but two, you don't want to work for this person. Yeah. I'm telling you, you don't want to work in this job. If they think that is a problem, it's not your problem. It's their yeah. problem. They yeah. got the problem. Something about that said something about them, not about you. Yeah. Or yeah. She didn't end up doing the job and she was so glad she didn't. I bet. But you know, it's like this crazy stuff. Sometimes you get to with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've had people really shocked at the level of vulnerability and transparency in the book. Um, and I didn't even like do a full reveal on everything. Right. right? And it's not, right. it's just because I had to, but you know, I, um, like the chapter, like my mom, I talk about my mom and I, I gave my mom the opportunity and it's not, my mom's a wonderful, loving human being. She just has in her life battled some mental health issues along the way. And I talk about that in the book and she, um, I asked her if she wanted to read it before I published it. And she said, no. Um, and when she read it, it kind of, uh, set her back a little bit. Um, but I didn't have regrets about sharing the story because it's part of who I am, yeah. right? It's not about her. It's not about some of these bad leaders I had and about the awesome leaders I had. It's like, what is my experience and what did I learn from it? Um, and so I'm finding that too, the people respond really well to transparency. Yes. You know, they want people to be authentic and transparent. And when you can do that, you can actually create connections and build relationships. And that means that you can actually get more accomplished together. So, yeah, yeah. most definitely. Well, I got to tell you this, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Christine. Finally, finally. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the dog, Teddy, the rescue oh, terrier. You finally no calmed deal. down. <laughs> yeah, it's no big deal. I mean, it's, it's been a real pleasure. And just to hear your story and, uh, you know, going behind the scenes a little bit and talking about leadership and tough things in your life. I appreciate you being open to talking about Yeah. It. It was great. It was an honor to be here. And if anybody wants to, you know, reach out to me, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and if they want to read the book, awesome. I'd love any feedback on it. My goal is hundred Amazon reviews. Nice. I'm up to 98. So I wanted a hundred by the end of the calendar year. <laughs> I don't know why it doesn't mean anything Yeah. except to like, I like goals. So, but I really do. Um, and I love to hear any takeaways people get from it as well. Uh, um, so I'm totally open to creating connections and community. So that's fantastic. Well, I would tell you like 106 people have been listening to this, which is pretty awesome. good. And uh, I'm sure, you know, what the interesting thing about these things is uh, it's not often like the voices, you know, I always tell people, Hey, you can ask questions of the guests and they come on here if you want. And people never do, but you never know the seed you planted. Yeah within that somebody heard this and it did something to them in a positive way i think so oh, well, thank, thank you, you for, for having me for that yeah, yeah of course. for sure for sure anytime <laughs> well listen christine this is going out to the world next week it's gonna be out for everyone and uh 
I look forward to connecting with you about that. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for your time today. You got it.